0: family incestuous family tree avril's off with cd while oren wants the Mary mario don't know he's fucked james went off and he stuck his head in a microwave Cartridges is inside his grave johnny gentle wants it clean engineering new machines americans should join up with mexicans and canucks ona and run the show quebecois threaten to go new england fresh to the brim giant fans for north would win the pile it was always hot and a little noxious We didn't stop the pile For the six-eyed babies and the concared babies Down at Boston, AA Crocodiles got their say. Rat-care dirty mask A billet still attached Gately sits, stands, and listens Gag the man with the sniffles One day at a time Toothbrush stuck in his behind Up his butt they girl in recovery PGOAT, Lyle a drop of sweat, Clip burton black to his head. How don't know just what to do, his littles watching him smoke a do. ADD, THC, no, don't no, take the DMC! We didn't stop the pile, it was always hard to get a little noxious. We didn't stop the pile, Doing in the complex, like fudging in the interest.
1: Hello and welcome to the I Hate Infinite Jest podcast. This is episode 14 pages 375 to 410. We're going to talk about Mario's movie. We're going to talk about stuff. We're going to talk about James and Candace's movie. We have a horrible story from Boston AA involving an umbilical cord and meth. Isn't that the worst? I know I hate it. I can never handle my meth and my umbilical cords together. Uh, our guest this week is Josh Brown. Don't find him on anything, all right? This is a guy who's been promoting the podcast since day one on Reddit. Get there on Reddit. Get there in the discussion. Might get you on the show. But, uh, yeah, he's been... He, he was a little nervous. This was the first podcast he's done. He did fucking great. He took some good notes, pointed out some things that I had missed, and, uh, yeah... Just super glad to have him. Again, don't look for him anywhere. He doesn't live a public life. He can do whatever he wants. Joe's Bro on Reddit. There's more to Joe's Bro, which is why I have no problem saying it. But good dude. We got into a lot of stuff here. Uh, Follow me at Jesse Dram on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram. Follow the I Hate Infinite Jest Facebook page. Follow uh, Diamond Joe Quim on Reddit. Not Trying to Be Dirty, Just Ran Out of Characters, Mr. Jessico on YouTube, but that's all the things. Short intro this week, we got some interesting weeks coming up, but you gotta listen to this one first, or you're missing out. Alright, I Hate Infinite Jest, Josh Brown, episode 14. I Hate Infinite Jest, episode 14, pages 375 to 410. My guest this week, he is, uh, he, he is the Peter to my Messiah, the rock upon whom I will build my church, Josh Brown. How you doing, buddy? Good, how are you? I'm doing good. I'm doing good on this Sunday, this Sunday morning. Uh, before we get into anything, if you have anything to promote, if you want people to know where you are out there, I don't. I, I. don't know how public a life you want. You feel like living.
2: Yeah, I'm not particularly active on social media. I have a Facebook account. I'm obviously active on Reddit, um, um, but with all the stuff going on, I've kind of like disengaged
1: from it for you know reasons. Okay, you're you're doing the smart thing. I get. <laughs> I get very concerned about doing anything public, like every other day, like a few months back, I don't know if you're aware of it, up in New Jersey, there's these two ding-dongs that have been like reopening their gym over and over again and making a big spectacle out of it. Mm-hmm. Um, that is in my hometown, and I shared a, a thing about it where it turned out one of the uh, owners that was putting on this big public spectacle had actually like run over and killed a kid drunk driving when he was like 19, and the post of it online kinda went viral. And at first it was like, oh, okay, interesting, more people getting involved, but then like certain people got a hold of it and suddenly I had people in Montana calling me a faggot and like, okay, I should probably get rid of this now because this has gotten yeah, a bit too far. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, you, uh, you, you and I got in contact online because you were probably like the very first person on Reddit that was like actively a fan of this podcast to the point where uh, you were starting to you you were doing a lot of the promotion that i wasn't how how did you even find this thing i'm, I'm very curious yeah the f- first time i read uh infinite jest i was somewhat active
2: on the subreddit and then since mm. then i've just been kind of like visiting it you know once a week or so just to see what people are posting and i just happened to like run across your introducing uh post and By the time I had come across that post, I think you had had the prologue and then the first two episodes out. And, you know, obviously you're not pulling any punches with the title of the podcast. So I was kind of hesitant uh, at first, but I realized, you know, maybe I'll just give it a shot. And uh, in the prologue, you said that um, you you weren't really trying to crap on the book. You were just not understanding what people liked about it. And so you were trying to bring people on and, of see their perspective and I, I i appreciated that and i think that if somebody who likes the book kind of promotes the podcast as a per as opposed to the person who's doing the podcast is probably a little bit more you know they'll probably be a little bit more open to it um mm. so i just thought i'd throw my two cents out there
1: and um it's, yeah, it's and it's I, I really enjoyed it so far well, thank you. It's it's much appreciated. I was really hesitant to even post it on Reddit in the first place, just because uh, it's a, a, again. I had that we were discussing a minute ago. I had no idea who the audience for this podcast was, and mm. I really don't like being a spoiler. Like for me, it was like I don't want to go into like their little subreddit where they're having fun and be like, "This is a piece of shit." You should re- yeah. l- listen to this. How I think it's a piece of <laughs> shit, but uh, people. People seem to like it. So there we go. Yeah. I, I never even occurred to me that there was a separate David
2: Foster Wallace subreddit. They don't like I, me
1: there. I don't know yeah, why. I, they do not like I, me
2: there. I've <laughs> seen some of your posts and I'm like, oh, okay. Okay. Have
1: that then. Um, I, I think it makes sense in that I feel like that's where more of the. Because uh, a, a lot of people are capable of loving Infinite Jest and just loving that book and then yeah. not really putting that praise and fanaticism onto the author himself but mm-hmm. i feel like the david foster wallace sub that's where the people really like i love everything this guy has done he is he's speaking for me and yeah that makes sense yeah um so yeah how did you uh what when did you first discover infinite jest and what was your what was your initial response to it um it was kind of a fluke really i mean i was um got, kind of got
2: into reading um like 2014 and then A couple years into it um, I was looking for a book to read um, and then somebody just happened to post this is water on Facebook. So I listened to that and I liked it. And then I had, I had recognized Wallace's name, but I just didn't know where. So I Googled it. And then of course, you know, everything infinite jest comes up. And so I was like, well, I'll give it a, I'll give it a shot. There you go. How long did it take you to get through the first time? Uh, Well, when I, I didn't, I knew that it was a big book, um, but I didn't know, like, I, I I hadn't become acquainted at all with the kind of obnoxious reputation it has <laughs>
0: mm-hmm.
2: um, until I was about a quarter, uh, halfway or maybe three quarters through. Um, but when I saw like just how big the book was, I was just like, okay, I'll just read 10 pages a day. That's nothing, like I can do that mm-hmm. and you know, no more, no less. And so the first time through, it took me like, Oh, almost four months. Okay. And there were some days where I was kind of into it and I read more, but there were some times where I was just like some
1: portions, especially closer to the beginning are kind of a chore. Mm Hmm. See, I've been, uh, it it really does kind of annoy me that I decided to do this podcast because it's uh, obviously I like everything about it. Otherwise I wouldn't put the work into it, but simply at this point, I would like to just finish the book and find out how it ends. But I yeah. don't I don't want to go through and read the whole thing because I know to take all these notes, I'm just going to have to go back and do it again.
2: Which... Ugh. Because of what people say, like you should reread it
1: and... Uh, well, no, I'm probably going to have to do it for that reason as well. But I'm saying like, I would like to just read the rest of the book just to know what happens to the characters. But then I would still have to go back just to do the podcast and like read it again oh. and take all the notes because reading it and taking the notes as I go is really like time intensive. It probably takes me just to get through like the 30 to 35 pages a week. It probably takes me like four to five hours just to type it out as I go along. It, and then, you know, you'll lose your spot when you come back into it, which I know just runs <laughs> you yeah. was part of this whole thing.
2: And then the, uh, and then the footnotes kind of throw, throw gear in that wrench sometimes
1: too. Yeah. It's like, you just can't get a rhythm together which i know is kind of the appeal i I don't know okay (laughs) so let's uh let's get into this here pages 375 to 410 uh last week we dealt a lot with boston a.a i thought i had gotten to the end of that but it pops up again in here uh first we just have hugh Steepley and maraith still sitting in tucson steeply has been assigned the task of cultivating people to the entertainment the maker's relatives, and inner circles. So not really telling us anything we don't know. I think all that's been kind of gleaned at this point. Um, jump back in time a little bit with uh, Lyle and himself. James and Candenza. James and Candenza has just left a sauna still sloppy drunk, which I have a note because I actually did that once in uh, Wisconsin. I got into a sauna while I was really, really drunk, and it was the worst goddamn thing ever. Your body is desperate for water, and <laughs> you just sweat it all out all right um himself was despondent over the re- over his reputation in the film com- community with even avant-garde journals noting just how weak the plots of his films were uh, his film found drama and anti confluentialism eventually was the product of this evening with lyle um footnote one forty five. transcript from moment magazine interview series with steeply and orin orin describes himself uh as in james and candenza the mad stork is funny that he came to entertainment through an interest in lenses and lights that he was the opposite of most filmmakers in that he became less abstract as he went you know I, i'm actually upset more fans have not made like film attempts of incandenza's stuff have you ever seen anybody try that Oh, um, of like the films, it's
2: like James's films. No, but I was going to say there's a bunch of, well, when I was reading this the first time through, there were a bunch of like student films that people were making for like film school Uh um, on YouTube. I I don't know if they're still there or not, but there was one um, of the medical attache when he comes home and he starts watching the entertainment and he's just kind of glued to it and he can't, and like it, it's like a ten-minute little student film, but it was really it was really cool because you like it shows him start watching it, and then like throughout the course of the movie, like there's police officers, EMS people, and
1: they're all just kind of glued to the screen. Oh, so it's the literally as the scene as more people come in, they just get glued. Okay, yeah. See, I I need to look into those more, but I I wish they kind of had them for. Uh like James and Candenza's movies just because they describe it in such detail, but I can't, I, I think I need to like actually see it pictured on the screen, particularly when they consistently talk about like lighting and lenses and uh, the entertainment itself was said to be like kind of wobbly from the point of view of like a toddler or an infant. Mm-hmm. Like I don't know, I'm, I'm surprised nobody's actually made that because the visualization would help quite a bit. Um, Warren said that James was hurt and annoyed by reviews of his works like the joke and he plotted revenge, made up his own genre, neorealism, and then paid off a bunch of young journalists and film professor types to slowly start mentioning it in their writings, creating the criticism before the actual art. It came to be called found drama. I always love when I hear modern art shit like that. Like I remember, uh, I read something in the 1970s that there was a, an exhibition for like a new modern artist and uh, it was just paintings and stuff. And everybody was raving like, Ooh, you can really tell the symbolism. And it was revealed afterwards that all the paintings had been done by a monkey. And, <laughs> and of course one of the critics was uh, the ultimate quippy little punk like, well, it was still the best art at the gallery that day. So <laughs> that's like the ultimate face saber. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Um, he would take a page out of the phone book, throw a dart, and the name it landed on would be the protagonist. Then he and the film professors would go out drinking. It was a pure modern art mockery facade. He was given two grants for his work on neorealism, which he re- refused to return after the hoax was revealed. End of footnote. I love hoaxes. So what is the... um
2: like? I was kind of confused here. Are they just, is he just finding somebody in the phone book and then him and the film critics are just following this person around? I'm actually, that, I'm because actually. Because specifically says that there's no recording, like there's no
1: cartridges. They weren't recording anything. I, it, it, for, all right. From what I gleaned, and this could be very wrong, I've been wrong on a few of these things. Uh, it almost seems to me that it's like, it's not, actually filmed like it's more of a concept like you know we threw a dart at this guy and then we made up a story around him but it wasn't it's not in any digestible medium which is another thing that makes it you know she artiste but yeah i couldn't i couldn't really figure that out but uh i don't know It, it was enough that he had the film critics and journalists you know Helping them prop it up, but it was never crystal clear. Yeah. Um, Okay, back to Boston AA. A direct continuation from the last episode discussing how AA works and why. Um, We got a grotesque story of a round pink girl with no eyelashes on stage, speaking how she'd freebase cocaine and gotten pregnant at 20, that she continued to freebase while pregnant, even knowing it couldn't stop, knowing it was bad for the baby couldn't stop smoking when her water broke and ended up smoking in her welfare apartment and giving birth to a stillborn baby. Uh, The sentence here I love, laying sideways like a cow, really painting a picture. (laughs) The fetus had never even developed a face, had been delivered dry like a sun-dried turd. She passed out and when she woke up, the dried turd baby still umbilically attached to her on the welfare rug. She was so overcome with grief that she constructed a black wall of denial and began carrying the dead baby everywhere, cord intact, in a pink blanket until the umbilical cord broke off on her end um the smell was enough that the other junkies tried to intervene with her to no avail finally a cop noticed and called the department of social services a little sideways here where they mentioned the mere mention of uh, department of social services sends every mother in the aa meeting crossing herself and hugging their children dss are a parental addict's greatest demons the thief of beloved children they came and took the baby and buried its assorted rotted parts, which had broken apart in the towel and had her impacted placenta removed. Stuck in the hospital. And when she got out, she tried to, switch, booze to sw- switch to booze to do herself in until hitting bottom at 2 a.m. and calling AA in the phone book. And now here she is speaking in front of everyone now. She has paid the ultimate AA compliment, sheer identification, not an ounce of judgment. Her addiction has already put, put, a, put her through a punishment obscene enough in its brutality. Gately remembers all over again what a tragic adventure this is that none of them signed up for. You know, there's always this thing in my life I've noticed, which is uh, when you see somebody, like, right after something traumatic has happened to them, and you just kind of have to go, like, oh, there they are still standing. And I kind of get that in this scene, just the fact that you're hearing this horrible story, and it's almost like one of the more horrible things of it is, like, And by the way, this lasted up until about seven hours ago. And now I'm here right now.
2: Yeah, and I, yeah, totally. And I think, um, I mean, there's, to kind of prepare for this, I kind of went back a couple pages before uh, 375. There's Mm -hmm. this other story that Gately kind of listens to where the guy gets up and he's like, he immediately just tries to make jokes and just kind of Mm. self-deprecate and the Ah. white flaggers are like they see right through him Mm -hmm. and um it says that they pay him the worst punishment of just being embarrassed (laughs) for him Mm -hmm. and then that's i feel like that's a contrast between what this girl experiences which is the highest compliment they don't see through her they see into her Mm -hmm. and i think that's kind of like gately's it's almost like he's realizing a little bit more how this Program works, and just kind of seeing the insides a little bit more,
1: right, and yeah, just that ultimate identification of you know all these people that are with the same disease seeing seeing the the different uh, the, the different roads they were pulled and torn asunder while dealing with it, and that's the thing every single one of them know, like, oh, even if that wasn't me like i I've been, I've been close to that, and I could have easily been that
2: yeah, I'm curious too um. Because I know that uh, just as an aside, her, the, like the baby's appendages are described as arachnodactylic, which is mm. like a spider. Mm. Gately uh, calls his addiction the spider. Yes. And then um, in the section, I think was with cousin Frank you were talking to about himself's father talking to him mm. and how he like slipped on a spider.
1: Oh, yeah. the tennis court. I forgot all about that. Yeah, that was the thing that fucked up his knees and made him never be able to go through. I I had forgotten that detail. Huh? No, no, I'd forgotten that detail, but I think you're definitely right. I mean, especially consider the fact that he's dripping drunk the entire time. And I mean, slipping on the spider very much, you know. Yeah, I'm wondering if that's something that
2: Gately uses, but it's also like a a symbol in the, the bigger novel, like,
1: the grander yeah. story well now that you point that out i'm definitely going to keep an eye out for other spiders i i, I missed the line about the you know, it, here's the thing i've noticed a few times in this book david foster wallace will throw in some variation of arachnid or a rack of the prefix for mm-hmm. just some random description so i think it's actually kind of gotten filtered out a little bit that i didn't pick that up even though that is obviously somebody talking about their addiction and mentioning The product of it being arachnid-like. That's a good catch. Good catch. I missed that one entirely. Um, Okay, we got a brief scene of Lyle and James and Mario hanging out in the Enfield weight room. Lyle drinks caffeine-free Diet Coke. Himself drinks wild turkey. James had a profound personality change when he drank from quiet and centered to ludicrously open and demonstrative. Mario tended to fall asleep within an hour of these sessions. He awoke once to hear his father refer to his marriage as C minus grade. James would get so drunk, Lyle began to get drunk off his sweat. I know we're supposed to like Lyle. The sweat thing still kind of freaks me out. I'm hoping there's a description at some point what he's getting out of this.
2: Yeah, um, I think that's just one of those things in like postmodern literature. There's, it kind of slips into some kind of magical realism. I don't, I don't recall there ever being...
1: An explanation as to why he has a hankering for sweat. Yeah, it's uh, I don't know. It's <clears throat> there's, there's something about the wackiness of some of this that just never quite gets the to me. But hey, it's I'm like I'm liking it more now. But all right, so the um
2: real quick the uh the cartoon characters. Um, I know in the previous section it was mentioned that Joel was there. Yes. Um, and then isn't there like a um something earlier with Madame Psychosis? where she has people call in and they can only talk to her in the voice of cartoon characters. Oh, I believe
1: that show is, uh, as it was described, the show where people called in with the voice of cartoon characters, that was the show preceding her show. Okay, all right. Yeah, but uh, yeah, that's right. There was something in this where they mentioned cartoon. What what was the note you had for this with the cartoon characters? Because I remember Um, that, but I didn't write it down. Lyle
2: uh, sometimes would start to get tipsy himself as himself's pores began to excrete the bourbon and then start to recite William Blake, but in the, in the voice
1: of various cartoon characters. That's right. Okay. Yeah, that, that was a callback there. Okay. Um, all right. We get, uh, we get into Mario's film here, which is going to take up a good chunk of the chapter, which he shot three years ago of a puppet show in a closet in his dorm. It's proven to be way more popular with Enfield students and staff than the children it was intended for. It gets shown every Interdependence Day in the Enfield dining hall after supper. Uh, In the background of all this is kids waiting for the shoe to drop from uh, the adults regarding several injuries, some season ending that occurred during eschaton. Everyone's wearing their silly hats, as is tradition, aside from Mario wearing his uh, mounted Bolex H64 camera. The film is a knockoff. Or tribute to himselfs four adult politi- political parody, the O-N-A-N-T-A-D. TAD. Do you have an idea if that's supposed to be pronounced ONAN or is it just ONAN every time? Um, I mean, I pronounce it ONAN. Um, okay. There's a. Are you
2: familiar with the uh, character from the Old Testament? I am not actually. There's a. <laughs> Uh, there's a character, there's a guy in um, the Old Testament named Onan, and like one of the customs in the Old Testament was if a a man dies, a married man dies before oh. having a kid, their brother has to step in and fulfill the duties, mm-hmm. and Onan, at the point of completion... It says it's he spills
1: his seed on the ground. That's uh, okay. So that's him. Better to let your seed fall into the belly of a whore than spill onto the ground. Yeah, and I think like when I
2: when I see Onan, I think that's like a callback to kind of like you're just you're wasting it.
1: Mm-hmm. Or like wasted potential or something. Okay, that's it, dude. You're you're full of these little chestnuts. I keep missing these things. <laughs> Which, God, could could you imagine that? Like, I I think of some of the girls that my brothers have dated and just like, if I had to take up that family, I'll i convert. Thank you very much. (laughs) Right. Okay. Uh, This is where we learn about President Gentle, who's been named a few times um, in this history. He was a lounge singer named Johnny Gentle. Famously, during a vocalist strike, he would continue to perform, only was completely silent, pantomiming his act, which enraged his audience. We learned something about a catastrophic waste buildup in the country, leading to national fissures and the two-party system of the GOP and Democrats being suddenly overrun by the clean U.S. party, herein known as CUSP, winning all elections in a national vote of no confidence vote to the previous system. This was only possible in a post-jihad, post-Soviet scenario where there was no national enemy to unite against. The cusp Party because Johnny Gentle was a Howard Hughes-style germaphobe that needed everything fanatically disinfected constantly. You know, a lot of people say Infinite Jest pre- uh, predicted a lot of the future. I was, I was gonna, I was gonna yep. talk about that. And by and large, I just made a big jerk-off motion. But <laughs> this chapter. Of a, a germophobic celebrity becoming president and fucking shit up is. Uh,
2: it, pretty also talks about, on also the talks nose. about him looking um, presidential in his uh, microfiltration face mask.
1: Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, God. Um, there appears to be footage of President Gentle. Uh, addresses that Mario has made his finger puppets into the listening crowd, turning to each other and murmuring about his declarations. Gentle's cabinet is represented entirely by black girl puppets in sequin dresses. Gentle added the Canadian prime minister and the Mexican president to his cabinet, which seemed to be the beginning of the unification. While the film is playing, the younger kids fuck around, barely paying attention. The older kids throw shit at the screen and mock the deeply unpopular president. Again, David Fosso Wallace picked out a good one here. Uh, the Canadian kids feel strange. They sit unhatted and stoic. This American penchant for absolute absolution via irony is foreign to them. They remember only hard facts and feel rather conflicted about being here in America, their enemy ally, on Interdependence Day. I'm glad we got that little touch because so far, aside from the we haven't really gotten a whole lot of thoughts on just how the Canadians feel about we haven't really gotten a lot of input on just what the people themselves think of this continental unification. So I like seeing a little bit there about the Canadians are really kind of like unsure about it. Yeah. And it it gets into it a
2: little bit more just why you have this wheelchair bound group of Canadian separatist assassins, um, Mm -hmm. running about
1: doing what they're doing. Um, here in a little bit now, I, I i do love the take he took on uh the whole Quebec thing where they they have always it seems like they're in a permanent teenage rebellion that like they always wanted to get out of Canada, and then once this unification happened, now they're sticking up for Canada over everything mm-hmm. else, although you know as we know with the great concavity slash convexity, they are kind of getting the shit end of the stick again um we have oh god i was gonna say what do you
2: think is the um reason for this disagreement on the concavity convexity thing I oh, is that just like the, the way that like the difference between the way people in the u.s kind of see things versus how people in canada see things
1: um i i look at this as something that well for one thing you do have the uniqueness of a concavity and convexity where literally one is just inverse of the other It it depends entirely on your perspective. So that's the thing is right. that from, you know, from the U S point of view, it bends out because it it's a bending out of the U S. So it's the concavity, but from the Canadian side, it is the convexity. Just So the literal definition works for both, but I think it does also kind of show like, uh, like well, this would, actually work into the uh gentle as trump scenario where it is kind of like this great deal you got but when you actually look at the deal like one side one side is gaining and the other side is losing like you're yeah yeah so i'm just i'm yeah i'm just reading into it then it's just Uh, a perspective thing not a there i'm sure there's more to it i just that this is as much as i can figure so far yeah Um, The film plays out how Johnny Gentle basically schmoozed the Canadian PM and Mexican president into joining countries, ending in the all-black girl puppet cabinet chorus of It's a Small Continent After All. All right, jump ahead here, page 386. Lyle is sitting in the empty weight room during Mario's film showing. Many students come down here during the film just to build up a sweat and seek his guidance. He seems to be the closest thing to a therapist on campus. Uh, We have a few things from a few students come to him. Lamont Chu is obsessed with becoming a famous tennis player, enough that he cuts his own clips out of magazines, that he wants to be in all the magazines so others will feel about him the way he felt looking at his heroes growing up, like Michael Chang, that he wants to be the next great yellow hope of tennis. This is particularly painful to him as Enfield has done its best to convey just how much fame and press at this early age can destroy a player's growth. Lamont is already risk averse by his fear that any failure or loss will detract from his positive attention. Lyle sucks the sweat off his cheeks and tells him that it is a false desire. Lyle explains that his heroes felt this feeling at first, but soon came to hate it. They hated the invasion of their privacy, but were now tethered to the fear of becoming obsolete and faded if their photos stopped appearing in the magazine. The truth will, uh, the big quote everybody comes to, the truth will set you free, but not until it is finished with you. You've been snared by something untrue. That that envy has a reciprocal. Michael Chang doesn't get anything out of you envying him. There is so much fear in fame. Lamont asks if the burning desire fades away. Lyle responds, what, fear, what fire is extinguished by feeding it? The world is unbelievably old, and you suffer with a stunted desire caused by one of its oldest lies. Do not believe the photographs. Fame is not the exit from any cage. Really good shit here. I'm... Uh, I like everything Lyle does in this chapter.
2: Yeah, Um, I like the idea of um, just if the thing that you want revolves around some sort of prosperity, success, fame, fortune, money, it's never going to be enough. I like the just the, the way that he kind of explains it here. It's yeah, you want this picture in a magazine but as soon as you get it as soon as you have that picture in the magazine you're going
1: to worry about how you look in it oh it looks staged Mm -hmm. it's just always going to be one more thing yeah that's definitely something that comes up and uh i've thought about this obviously doing comedy as i mentioned before but Mm -hmm. as i mentioned before as i've mentioned in this podcast i have not mentioned that at all during this individual podcast um, like the the kind of, I have had the thought before of having my own anxiety issues I had a little bit of like an agoraphobic uh, not like classic agoraphobic like wouldn't leave the house but I would get like terrible anxiety if I would get too far from uh, Philly or New Jersey or whatever yeah. and just the irony I was struck with a bunch of times like I'm trying so hard to get ahead in this comedy thing which ultimately like if everything works out I'll be flying at somewhere else in the world for three to four days a week for the rest of my fucking life i don't like any of that so what exactly the fuck am i doing here and yeah uh, i wish i had a lyle because i still don't have an answer to that the whole covid just kind of kicked the whole problem down the can for a few more years so (laughs) yeah exactly Um, A breastless female senior seeks Lyle's advice on a strange mosquito-like whine she always hears in the presence of her fiancé. More than likely easily fixed if she slapped it in the face rather than psychologically bury the memory of him joking she could use some Band-Aids on her mosquito-bite breasts. Ouch. Uh, Ten-year-old Ken Blount has religious parents, is not old enough to masturbate, but is already panicked about what will arouse him. He's pre-concerned of developing kinks and fetishes and wants to get ahead of it. Love it. Funny shit. (laughs) Anton Doucette is concerned about a mole near his nostril being mistaken for a booger. He's so stuck on it, the way people are clearly doing their best to not look directly at it. His pubescent anxiety over it is driving him crazy. He believes upperclassmen have begun calling him booger behind his back. Lyle tells Anton to come back with Mario, a tactic tactic he often uses with those complaining of self-image issues. Uh, Stice's bed moves around in his sleep, moving from one wall to the other. He fears he is either a sleepwalker or has telekinesis, but only when he sleeps. That would be a great movie right there. Uh, Lyle advises Stice to not underestimate objects, tells the story of a man who would lift a chair from the floor he was, while he was standing on it. So a yeah, bunch of interesting stuff here. I like that we're, we're rounding out the uh, extended cast quite a bit and figuring out more what they're dealing with. It makes me wonder if I was a teenager, what would I come to Lyle about? Particularly that guy with the mole. I'm trying to think what I uh, (laughs) I got. So um, any thoughts on that
0: section?
1: I forgot what I was gonna say.
2: Okay. Oh, uh, that's right you you've said before that you were gonna have somebody on um or you were thinking about having somebody on to talk more about the structure of the book mm-hmm. it, um it, the first time you said serpinski gasket was the first time i'd ever heard it really? i looked it up and i saw the, like the, the little diagram of it and my mm-hmm. immediate reaction was no way in hell like that i don't i don't buy it for one second but i'm wondering are you I kind of see it reading this section a little bit of the section you
1: talked about last week. Mm. Um, it's one of the things I've seen looking into it is just, uh, I mean, e- even comparing literary structure to a Sierpinski gasket, like it can, it, it doesn't, seeing it in practice, it doesn't seem as complicated just cause mm. you know, to equate something to like a visual you can pretty much justify it in any manner of ways. The, the way I almost look at it is just looking at a triangle and then just imagining two more. Cause whenever you have a triangle, all you need is uh, one more point attached to it, creating a third triangle. If you just had two lines and another point. So if right. you're literally building a world by just putting another point and then it, you know, grows out another that I don't know. That's my own mental thing. I see with the Sierpinski gasket, but I'm not, I don't know, I could still be missing something. Well, the you know, the, a little bit of the last chunk and
2: then this chunk is like several triangles that involve um, Don kind of listening to people's stories at AA. And mm-hmm. then you have this other chunk right here where it's several triangles of people coming to Lyle for, you know, about these anxieties they have about their future career, you know, um, kinks and so on and so forth. So Mm -hmm. I I feel like there's, there's these smaller triangles, you know, within these different sections that kind of
1: Mm -hmm.
2: fall under the same umbrella of like what it is they're talking
1: about, anxiety, Mm -hmm. commitment, speeches and stuff like that. See what I'd like to see if somebody out there has better video skills than me, I think you could probably make a visual to this to prove this out where if you were to show like a timeline of events as they happen in the book with the visual manifestation of the Serpinsky gasket growing as it goes, I think you could definitely yeah. make a, definitely make a, an argument for that. Um, okay. Next section. So a lot of this coming up is going to be nothing but headlines. Cause in Mario's film, he is mixing news he, newspaper headlines, both real and fictional to summarize world events during this period. Here are some doozies. Uh, Gen- President Gentle on waste storage from dismantled NATO therms. Not in my nation, babe. Twelve fifteen nation dissolves. Twelve out of fifteen nations dissolve NATO. Mexico signs for O N A N. Quebec rejects this Finlandization. So randomly this week, um, there's a a, a a history hub on YouTube I subscribed to that actually described what is meant by Finlandization. And the video was, why didn't the Soviet Union take over Finland? And pretty much there's a whole thing like, well, they didn't have to because basically Finland played along with the Soviet Union so they wouldn't invade. As such, the Soviet Union had a buffer to the rest of Europe and Finland, pretty much Finland had to go along with everything. Otherwise, like Europe wasn't going to come to their aid and Russia would just overrun them. So Finland basically just had to play it safe for their own safety for the entirety of the Soviet Union. So that's just a random bit that it's hysterical that this popped up this week because it gave me way more context on just that little sentence of Quebec being Finlandized as a a connection between the US and Canada. Um, Well, that's cool. I was was wondering what that meant, so. Oh, well, there you go. I'm glad I had that little random tidbit this week. Uh, More headlines. Fed workers protest random fingernail hygiene screenings. Again, a little prophetic of where we are. Uh, Initial bids on year naming, starting with Burger King. Supposedly dismantled Manitoban therms are merely being moved and dumped into North Dakota. Doctors rush to remove railroad spike from Canadian PM's right eye. I would like to know if that's one of the real ones. Executive branch official complains of germaphobe hygiene protocols being a nightmare. Again, like the fucking leaks of people really upset with a unpopular president. Um, yeah. Putrid slick empties onto shores. Maine, Vermont, and New Hampshire converted to massive toxic waste landfill. Um, oh, before I get too far from it, I know it comes up, but it fits here. Uh, one of the theories they posit in this is the reason that the Northeast is where all the toxic shit gets dumped is because apparently they refuse to put gentle on the ballot and this is a uh, long overdue revenge of Johnny gentle on the States that did not look after him again, pretty goddamn prophetic. <laughs> well, I was
2: uh, like, there was another part in here about NAFTA, uh, about dissolving oh, yeah. NAFTA, mm-hmm. which Trump did for North America, Canada,
1: Mexico agreement or something like that. Mm-hmm.
2: So we're on the way to Onan.
1: Yeah, we're We're oh, almost God. there. I wouldn't mind linking up with Canada. Canada ain't that bad. They're very polite. Yeah. We, we, we'd make a nice little throuple, you know. Mexico is the one when you feel, feel a little dangerous, a little spicy. You have a night out with them. But, you know, sometimes you just want to sit in and read a book, and that's when you have Canada there. It works out for everyone. Uh, Match made in heaven. That's right. Freak Statue of Liberty accident kills Fed engineer. Toxic horror uncovered in upstate New Hampshire. My baby has six eyes and basically no skull. We're getting into some of the mutations there. Um, we jump into some stuff here. Mm, pardon me.
0: <clears throat>
1: Sorry, that breakfast's coming up. Uh, Hal knows Mario got his film and puppet interest from his dad. James, oh, okay, we learn about his film The Joke, which I think is a neat subject here. Uh, James was obsessed with the relationship between audience and the entertainment and made a few films on the subject one being about an audience watching a play involving a battle to the death between Medusa and a Quebecois legend, the Odalisque de Saint-Therese. The Medusa had the myth of being so horrid, her sight would turn one to stone. The Odalisque had the reputation of being so beautiful, her sight would turn one into a human-sized gem, so natural foils. Due to their curse, both must fight with their backs to the crowd covered in armor. As armor falls off, the audience slowly gets picked off by sights and turned to stone or gems, until the two creatures continued to duel to the death to a petrified audience. The end. The most popular film was The Joke. All the ads required of The Joke had some version of ad copy saying, do not waste your money seeing this film. The crowds took this as a fun little prank and went to see the show. In the theater, there'd be a tall man with a camera and Mario also there with his mounted head bolex standing by the exits. The crowd figured they were there to film some documentary, but the film would start, and it would be revealed to be live footage of the audience itself projected back to them. The film's runtime was variable, lasting as long as the audience sat there and watched themselves. Most people hated it, aside from the typical snooty art critics who had to create logical bridges and tunnels to convince themselves and the world it was genius. Most annoying was that Mario and James had to pack up and fly to the next screening as soon as possible, as they were obviously needed for every showing. Yeah, so that's an interesting... Interesting thing there. You have any Are you familiar?
2: Uh, um,
1: You you had to have seen The
2: Room, right? Loved it. Yes. Yeah. So um, I can't remember where I read this. Maybe it's actually in the book, but this part where it talks about they had to like put a sign out that says do not watch this movie. And mm-hmm. then the, the art crowd says, oh, that's, you know, that's so clever. Um, I think it was in the book, but they talk about when, because Tommy Wiseau was like loaded. And so when he had, the room he would just pay the theaters to keep it going mm-hmm. and I think they had to put a sign up like many many customers have had to ask for a refund <laughs> and watch this <laughs> so that's where a lot of its popularity came in like some art students came in watched it and like this is just absurd and then mm-hmm. people
1: just like grew is this like so bad it's good movie see I've always had an issue with so good it's bad and this comes from I'll tell you exactly where this comes from I love it's so good, it's bad stuff, but I've never really liked hipsterism or irony. So I've always tried to reframe that as movies like Troll 2 or Mm -hmm. The Room. Like It's not that it's so bad, it's good. It's entertaining because it succeeded at being... It was trying very hard to be a dramatic movie, and instead it accidentally succeeds as a hilarious comedy of just ineptitude so it's less like oh it's so bad it's good like no it succeeded in the exact opposite way it was trying i think yeah i think a lot of the charm of it
2: comes from the fact that you have these people who just they just did whatever they could to achieve their dream Mm -hmm. i think a lot of people just kind of relate to that it's like yeah this this is terrible but he did what he set out to do. He made a movie. You got you Ex- to respect that.
1: You got there. There is a certain American dreamness of it, which yeah. If anything, I think it's a better example of the American dream because here you have this immigrant. He came in all this money. I'm going to make my big film, and he was just so <laughs> fucking inept at it. But he failed his way upward. Like once the film started getting famous, he actually retconned like, no, it was comedy all the time. The black comedy, yeah, yeah. Which uh, I also wanted to mention, I I love the gimmickiness of the joke. And it reminded me of, uh, so in Philly, there's a film group called Exhumed Films. And they'll like rent out theaters and show like super old horror movies. One of the things they do is every Halloween for like 10 years, they've had a 24 hour horror movie marathon, like in the theater. You have to sleep in the theater. But uh, they won't tell you what any of the movies are beforehand. And one of them, I think it was called Screams at the Pajama Party. It's a little half hour thing. And the whole gimmick when they made this is it's like a horror comedy on screen. And it's a gorilla running around holding up a sign like, you know, scream now or whatever. And the gimmick of it is at one point they run off screen on the screen. And then people in costumes run out onto the stage themselves and interact with the crowd. So it's, I always love gimmicky shit like that. I wish they didn't, I wish they do shit like that more often. Okay, uh, back to this. Uh, In the film, the all-black girl doo-wop cabinet is having an important meeting with a Canadian president, Mexican president and Canadian PM. The U.S. will be represented by Time, who is rumored to be the real engineer behind the whole concavity business, as Johnny Gentle is busy puffing pure oxygen discussing the dis- toxic disaster area and what to do after NASA's refusal to help shoot the garbage into space wh- is very reminiscent of the Futurama plot. I'm curious if that's where Futurama got the idea for that episode of shooting all the garbage into space.
2: Well, I, it, it reminded me of wall although they don't shoot trash into space. They've covered Earth with trash, so they went into space.
0: Oh, okay. But... Uh.
2: I do know what Futurama episode you're talking about and that kind of makes me want to go back and watch
1: it. Yeah. I want to look into that. uh, uh, I was actually so upset. I have a personal connection to one of the original writers and directors of Futurama episodes. And I was so hoping he was into infinite jest so I could like maybe exploit that and get him on but. his, Far as I can tell, uh, yeah, Swinton O. Scott. He's like a cousin of a former coworker of mine, and he directed yeah. like some of the best Futurama episodes. Um, well, going back to the, uh, I mean, you know
2: that Mike Schur is a fan of Infinite Jest, but these like mm. headlines that get progressively longer reminds me of. Uh, did, did you watch The Office? Yeah, um, the episode where there's like that filthy watermark on the epi- on the p- piece of paper. Oh, and okay. S- Michael Scott is in these like, here's the headline for you, you know, uh, regional, <laughs> manager of, <laughs> regional manager of pa- regional paper company, you know, and it's just, it just goes on and on.
1: <laughs> yeah. I don't rewatch the office enough. Cause I remember, I remember that and I immediately started laughing at the memory of it, but I haven't seen that episode in years. <laughs> yeah. Um, Oh, yeah. After NASA's refusal to help shoot the garbage into space, the only option is to sequester off a chunk of the country slash continent to become the country's dumping grounds. This is in revenge for Maine and Vermont not allowing Johnny Gentle on the ballots and the mayor of Syracuse having accidentally sneezed on him once. It's pretty fun. The plan is to give this territory to Can- away to Canada and relocate the people within it. They seem less concerned with the relocation as opposed to how it comes off. Keeping naked children under a certain percentage, making sure vehicles are only stacked are only stacked quite so high, coming up with a better branding branding than refugees and uh, shooting any any stray uh, cattle, a modern day trail of toxic tears. Like, ew. very interesting. Um, so we have more headlines here uh gentle to canadian pm has some territory canadian pm to gentle no really thanks anyway gentle to canadian pm but i insist Quebecois threatened to leave over convexity canadian pm no really we're full couldn't take another bite of territory u.s accused of experialist domination which i think that's a that's a cute idea that you never we've heard of imperialist but not dominating by giving away territory Several headlines, it's all jacked up. Exactly. Uh, several yeah. headlines on previous mental health issues with Gentle. Again, a little prophetic. Gentle orders missiles removed from silos, reinstalled upside down, threatens to detonate upside down missiles. Yeah. Uh, this last bit seems to be Mario's invention. The Enfield people understand it to reference a former Enfield student Eric Clipperton, who always brought a Glock 17 gun with him to his games, stating loudly that he intends to blow his brains out should he ever lose even once. This one, somebody has to have done a film version of somewhere because it's so... The image of a guy playing tennis with a gun to his head the entire time is like... That seems like it should be an album cover. That is an instantly, like, iconic image to me. I saw uh,
2: on on the subreddit... I saw somebody had, had done a drawing of it. And then there was uh, years back, there was somebody who like made like dioramas of oh, okay. scenes from infinite jest made out of Lego. So there's like a little <laughs> Lego guy with a, a gun to his head. Right.
1: Nice. Um, that would be interesting to see a film of Eric Clipperton though. I, I would watch a short film just about that. Definitely. Um, Okay, so yeah, he always holds a gun to his head, threatening to kill himself should he ever lose. This led to students automatically forfeiting to him. The rankmasters figured out what he was doing and assured the players no one would lose ranking due to this. A loss meant nothing against Clipperton, and neither would a win. Was treated as a walk in baseball, known as the Clipperton Brigade. Uh, cute footnote, 158. Most umpires tend to be retired high school principals who take the gig to dip back into having authority over young people again. Uh, story here, Clipperton played a kid named Reed, and when he was losing, took out the gun began massaging it against his temple, very unseemly to the spectators. For the rest of the match, Clipperton plays with a Glock to his own head. Reed threw the match and kneeled kneeled to him as he shook his hand after the match, the last person to shake his hand voluntarily, completely psychologically destroyed by Clipperton's willingness to win. Uh, Clipperton is a mystery, came out of nowhere, unlike the others who piqued the awareness of scouts at a young age. He's never seen at the same airports and Denny's as everyone else. He just materializes, always alone, at increasingly high-level junior tennis tournaments, register his independence as plays. His opponents half-ass it or talk on the phone as they barely engage this lunatic with a glock to one hand and a tennis racket in the other, though he has mastered the serving with your racket hand technique, typically only used by people one, uh, maimed into one-armed them. Clipperton's only remote friend is Mario, who is often around with James Incandenza, as they're always filming for tennis documentaries. Mario finds him intriguing in a way he doesn't understand, which he finds hilarious. Mario is the only, overall, the only person that wants his company or treats Clipperton like he exists. Some Incandenza test footage is the only known footage of the late Clipperton, leaned over on the bench while Mario stands behind him laughing at something he said, trying to gauge the light. The footage of Clipperton's inevitable suicide is one of several cartridges buried with James and Candenza, whose body was buried by his wife in Quebec, just north of the convexity slash concavity. Yeah, what do you think of that whole Clipperton thing there, and Mario's movie in general? Well, um, there's a bunch of
2: allusions to their, like, there's a bunch of places in here where it's kind of like mentioned that some of it is just stuff that Mario added.
1: Yeah, I don't Um, know what's what.
2: uh, Yeah, I mean, I think that like the bigger points, obviously, I don't, I think the um, the, I guess like the the female sequin dress um, women, I think they were probably Mm -hmm. added. Uh, That's probably just a flourish. Oh,
1: yeah. I I figured those were just the puppets he chose to uh, act out that scenario. And then it's kind of one of those, it's one of those scenarios where this is like a parody
2: of a parody because he's parodying something that James made right already. Um, but also there's this little phrase um, near the end. It's like a, he uses a, it, it's called puppet a clef, which is because there's puppets in here, but the real term is a Roman a clef, which is like a true story where the characters' names are changed, so like uh, Hemingway's "The Sun Also Rises" okay. or Fitzgerald's "The," you know, "Tender Is the Night," where it's mm-hmm. like it's a story that they kind of experienced that they kind of lived, but all the characters are changed, like the the names are different. Okay, so, yeah, and
1: like uh, "Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas," it's the first one that jumps out to me. Where it, yeah, it yeah, that's a good one. End.
2: The um and the um the last part of johnny gentle's kind of headlines where it talks about him pointing the uh the The, the warheads downward and then kind of threatening like if you don't do this i'm gonna kill myself and Mm -hmm. just kind of like wipe everything Mm -hmm. off and that kind of like leads into eric clifferton his
1: whole his whole like mo playing tennis Mm -hmm. yeah (laughs) Uh, pretty pretty good chapter this week that's uh that's that's, that's the end of our of our chapter right there that's uh four four t- ten is that the final page yeah four ten yeah four ten yeah particularly good chapter did you like going back and rereading this yeah um
2: yeah the whole thing i mean just the the podcast in general um has been interesting it's been uh, you know a, a fun experience kind of reevaluating this um from you know through the eyes of somebody else mm-hmm. it's kind of had to I've had to confront certain more problematic aspects of it that I just,
1: mm-hmm. like, it just kind of rolled off my back my first read-through. Well, let me be honest. I mean, a lot of the stuff I've called this out on, like, uh, using a lot of, like, the black vernacular, I yeah. don't actually care. I, I, I'm just trying to point out, like, think, things that, like, you know, people are kind of excusing. It, it doesn't mean it affects me. It doesn't mean it affects me personally, but at the same time, right. it's like you know, guys, this is a this is a little much here from like your literary Bible, don't you think? But yeah,
2: yeah. I mean, like the first time I read that, I was just like, well, "What is this?" And, and you know, I, I don't recall that character um, ever coming back up, although I think they do. Um, but I actually liked uh, you had that you were talking with Stevie McFly about that and you were Ah. kind of explaining how people kind of go about that. And his reaction was, that's kind of worse. (laughs) 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 Which I thought that was, I thought that
1: was funny. Yeah. It's, uh, I mean, it's, uh, you know, people, I, I, I figure people must, one of the pluses of this podcast is even if you are like, even if you are in like a literary social circle, will people read a lot? you're very unlikely to you, you would more uh, this podcast is more or less filling the gap of if you're reading this book for the first time you essentially have somebody to kind of discuss it with you just cuz it's such a big yeah. book i can't imagine you like actively discussing with somebody like oh did you get up to this part yet and blah 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 and like and because there is so much to digest like it's also it's a little it's a little help cuz i'll tell you like i really don't remember most of the chapter until i come back and do the actual episode and like go through the notes. Like, yeah. I wouldn't have remembered half of this. Have you gotten to the point um, yet where you originally, like, gave up on? I'm definitely, I'm definitely past the point. Because the thing is, I... Here's the thing. I remember getting up to, like, 400 pages and giving up. But realistically, I don't remember anything that happened after, like, page 200. Okay. So I don't know if maybe... Uh, for all I know, those last 200 pages, I might have been like skimming and it just didn't grab me at all. So maybe I just gave up then. I don't know. 20, 21-year-old Jesse is not a mindset I'm trying to get back into. That, that guy was <laughs> kind of a dick.
0: <laughs>
1: yeah, I've, uh, I've appreciated some of the things that you've said
2: about um, Ayn Rand. I didn't, yeah. I, didn't get into, I didn't get into her as early as, as you did, but I, uh, I, read, I read The Fountainhead first and then I was like, what? You know, and, then, <laughs> um, and then I just, I guess, I guess against better judgment, I read Atlas Shrugged and I was just like, you know, if I have to read about one more dinner party where everybody explicitly expresses their worldview to each other, yeah. I'm going to lose it.
0: It's, uh, it.
1: Her, her writing, I still stand by the fountainhead, not only as a book, but uh, I won't even, I won't even say a philosophy, but like, as like, a per- for those who don't know, Ayn Rand, it's objectivism. It's uh, basically libertarianism. Like, nobody's allowed to do anything that you yeah. can't do. You're, uh, nobody's allowed to take your talent without payment. And it's like, you know, at least on the personal level, that could work for an individual person. But when they try to apply mm-hmm. that philosophy to Atlas Shrugged, it's just like, oh, this is just fucking bullshit. Like, literally, <laughs> literally making up problems and like, and this one thing solved it. Like, well, how did it solve it? Like, it just solved it. Don't worry, it's fiction. But then people actually it's, try to you know, get that in fucking modern U.S. economy. Yeah,
2: to a large... I mean, to, to some extent, I agree with you about The Fountainhead, because that kind of... Um, it doesn't have the, I guess, the huge like thing bringing it down, because Atlas Shrugged is basically The Fountainhead, but just on a larger scale. Right. They're, they're basically the same story. So Fountainhead kind of has a little bit more focus. It's kind of like a little bit more localized to these central characters. Mm-hmm. And then the thing that really kind of brought the, I guess, saved the Fountainhead from just being a total disaster was the end. I, I really like the end kind of saved it for me. Yeah. The, not the uh, not the the explosion part, but the the part where the I think Gail like closes <laughs> closes
1: down his uh, newspaper. Mm-hmm. So he, so Ellsworth doesn't have a job that's right, yeah, well yeah, he had to give up a little bit, which is funny because I think that would go against Ayn Rand right there because he gave up part well, no, I guess he realized a greater worth than money, and he realized all yeah. he had to do all he had to do to destroy his enemies was just stop giving you know stop giving him the power to you know choke out his own beliefs right. But yeah, I'm, uh, I'm glad I went through that at a young age, just because I, I mentioned to people on here, like I was early alt-right, and thank God I got the fuck out of that, just because uh, like I said, when, when I originally got into it, it seemed mostly like conservatives, conservatism without the religion, which, you know, evangelical huge during the Bush era. And it's funny, I've noticed this, uh, my girlfriend is like big punk rocker from back in the day, ran in the punk scene and she's been dealing with a lot of people the last few weeks like her old punk friends talking politics and just coming in the room like you're not going to believe what this fucking idiot just said (laughs) like people people who agree with her on other things but like that was always my kind of thing like i i said to somebody before because i said like you're kind of like conservative right like dude if i was in alabama i would be like the most liberal person in the world the problem is I am in the Northeast, so the people who look down their noses and treat me like a fucking idiot are extreme liberals who don't know any more than anybody else. Yeah. Like it's that politics is religion bullshit. Like, well, I was really I I was raised to believe this way. And if you didn't believe this from day one, then you're a fucking monster. It's like,
0: fuck you. You haven't done anything.
1: (laughs) You haven't earned anything. You got lucky in that you were the fucking son of like a pottery instructor and a, a professor at a college. And they just taught you this bullshit from day one. Good for you. You yeah. never had to fucking learn or put in effort for yourself. Yeah.
2: Ugh. All right. I'm going on a rant. Yeah, I agree. <laughs>
1: yeah. But yeah. So thank you for doing the podcast, man. Uh, you, you came in. You're a very good note taker. You picked up a lot of good stuff in there. Good, good notes, good concepts that I missed out on the first time. We got we to keep an eye out for of spiders. Spiders are going to yeah. come up again. And look this is like, I mean, I, I've read the book twice
2: and I'm just like rereading this chunk and listening to your podcast and like I'm just now catching up on that that symbolism if if I'm catching up on something that's actually there. I think it is. I mean spider is kind of mentioned throughout, so
1: do you do you prescribe to the the suggestion that it needs to be read twice to be truly appreciated? Truly appreciated? No, the the way that
2: I see this is kind of like the marvel cinematic universe like you don't need to watch um guardians of the galaxy to appreciate captain america you know but if you do there's some rewards there for you there's some there's some like easter eggs that you can kind of catch up on i mean obviously i I would say that you should probably watch captain america one before you watch captain america two but the there's there's a lot of kind of like interconnectedness between the movies so, like, if you watch it, if you read this book the first time through, then, just like Lion was saying last week, if it does something for you, then it does something for you. If you if you didn't like it the first time through, you're probably not going to like it much mm-hmm. more the second time through, I and mean, you're going to get those, you're going to pick up on those extra things. But it, mm-hmm. if you if you didn't like it, then
0: why read I, it again.
1: I feel like the way this book is written, like I, I've referred to before, is like breadcrumb breadcrumb storytelling, where mm-hmm we just get a little bit of information early on with no context. And then later that character will pop up out of nowhere and suddenly be contextualized. So since that, since that's how the book is already written, like that is kind of, I've been calling it breadcrumb storytelling, but Easter egg storytelling might also apply to it. Cause it is like the same mechanism in which an Easter egg works in the first place. It's yeah. something of something that seemed mundane with sudden, uh, you know, literally in the background, suddenly being dripping with context and importance. If you don't, I mean, I, I would like to, I would echo what other people have said on the
2: podcast. If you don't reread the, the book as a whole, I would definitely recommend that you reread the, like the first couple chapters. Um, because when I did that, I was just like, what? Because there's some like, there's some lines in the very beginning of this book where once you've read the whole thing, it just, you're like, how did I how did I miss that the first time through? But it's obvious why you missed it the first time through. Cause like you said, it doesn't have any context.
1: Right. Like I'll be, the very first time he wrote he writes down in the book the, the chronological order of the sponsored year names. I immediately like I kinda wanna go back and just look at the chapter heads of every single one because you can tell some stuff's getting like jimmied around, but you don't really no, I mean, half of the chapter titles are like the same date in the same year. So you're not even sure what's what. Right. And as soon as you saw a year of glad chronologically last, and yet it's the first page of the book, like, ah, fuck. I like, I don't even know what <laughs> to appreciate. Well, then.
2: That's another thing I noticed because I've, I've always known that Johnny gentle was a germaphobe, but like five of the nine listed subsidized years are like hygiene and cleaning products. Oh Yeah. Okay. Okay. Like Year of yeah. Glad. Year of Glad. Adult undergarment, Tufts medicated pad, Dove Bar. And then there was, I think it was one more. Um, okay. Oh, the
1: dishwasher, the Maytag right. dishwasher. The, the Whisper Silent Maytag dishwasher. I'm trying yeah. to think that the Dove Bar, I actually was thinking Dove Chocolate and not Dove Soap, but I guess that uh, it would be kind of dumb if it was Dove Chocolate and that was the only one in there like that now that I think yeah. about it. Okay, good to know. Well, buddy, thank you for doing the episode. This was great. Um, yeah. Again, Josh Brown, you, you can't find him anywhere because he doesn't want to be found. So leave him <laughs> alone. Um, yeah, thanks for- I'm being on f-
2: Facebook. I, I'm, I'm, my Facebook is active and inactive, um, mm-hmm. kind of ebbs and flows, depending on how pissed off people make me.
1: There you go. So yeah. So go to Facebook and <laughs> go to Facebook <laughs> and find Joshua Brown and just friend all 85 of them. Cause you'll, yep. you'll find them in there somewhere. It's a, it's a fun, it's an Easter egg. You don't know which is which let's find out where am I, which Josh Brown has the Brown chocolate center, buddy. Thank you very <laughs> much for doing this. Uh, thanks for having me. going to end this episode. Like every other, I'm going to stop recording now, but you and I can still chit chat a little bit. Have a happy Monday, everybody.